Welcome to the 2022 version of the Old Grad Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Schleck. I'm joined tonight by our co-host, Bernard Seeger, and we're interviewing our first guest of 2022, Brigadier General Retired Mike Eastman. That's, uh, we, we're experimenting with some new formats here, starting with a, a new walk-up song. And Bernard had a good idea. We should change it every time based upon the host. If they have a, if they have a favorite uh, song to uh, start as the intro, maybe we'll do that. So that happens to be one of my favorite songs because it takes me back to 1991. And it makes me think about just as we graduated, going to airborne school, some of the lyrics in there about the Berlin Wall falling and how it changed everything. It really does kind of take you back to that time in our lives. It was such a um, such an interesting, pivotal time in our history, uh, as is right now. So, uh, so anyway, thanks again, thanks again, guys, for for joining us, um, Mike. Uh, thank you for making the time for us. We're really we're so proud of you as a classmate. So proud of what you've accomplished, and so eager to hear your perspectives uh, on West Point, the Army, the Long Gray Line, and your life in general. So, thanks again. Oh, thanks for having me on. And I, for one, I'm going to now open up my beer because once I get through a, a successful uh, takeoff of the of the old grad podcast, then I feel like I can begin to uh, I could begin to allow myself to have a beer to relax. So, um, so Mike, give me the lay of the land. Where are you living? What's going on? Uh, the whole whole shooting match. Yeah. So, um, in a nutshell, I've been. Uh... I've been out now, retired for going on two months, maybe, and change. Uh, we got a place down in Mount Vernon, Virginia, right, uh, right from the actual Mount Vernon, about a one exit away. Um, and moving into the nonprofit world, got the kids, um, all three, either out of college or in college, with uh, with one new addition to five-year-old tenant hanging out in the house now, which was a unexpected but kind of a bonus kind of a bonus son and uh really super excited about what the next chapter brings whatever that is i, I mean i'll be honest i'm sort of uh figuring it out like everybody else you now you go through these major life changes and you you're trying to sort out what you're meant to do and i'm kind of in that phase i think for a lot of us this is like a pivotal moment i mean probably no no more pivotal than getting out of the army after 30 years but uh i think for a lot of us at this time of our lives we got kids leaving the house and we got new jobs starting up or various other things it's we're all in this period of transition but how significant that transition is for you leaving uh, we've talked a lot on this podcast about imposter syndrome the initial sort of like re-entry back into civilian world what that's like i'm sure there's just all kinds of just day-to-day -day reminders to yourself of like the fact is you, you feel like you're kind of re-entering a whole new world i suppose right yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's a good way to capture it. Um, it's funny, right? I work in this space now trying to help other folks transition. Talk about, talk about imposter syndrome, right? As I sort myself out, uh, here I am giving counsel to, 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 to young folks as they leave the military. Um, but it is different, right? And, and for me, 
you know, probably one of the most stark things is, is honestly, I come from a division, right? In my last job, I was, you know, 12,000 folks and a fairly significant staff. Um, to become now a staff of one, right? And every failure I own because I have committed it. <laughs> um, and it's just different, right? It's just, it's an adjustment and it's one I'm working my way through. But, you know, it's probably good. It keeps everybody grounded, that's for sure. You know, I've had my wife do that for me for 30 years. Um, now I get to ground myself as well, right? There's no one else to, to, to blame when something doesn't happen on time. So hey, we were Jack, go ahead. You go ahead, so, ahead uh, Yeah. I, I want to share share with the group uh, a little, Mike, about your wife and what her story is and how you met her. I think some people are going to get a kick out of that one. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I mean, my, you know, so first of all, like most of us, I married up um, by orders of magnitude. My wife, um, you know, I don't know if I share with you guys, my wife is Vietnamese. She's a first generation and uh, her family left right after the Vietnam War. Her, her father was the... Uh, undersecretary for agriculture in the South Vietnamese government. And so she came to the US by way of Niger, well, by way of a, an, air, air, an air, aircraft out of the embassy, and then Niger for four years in Africa, and then Paris for four years, came to the US when she was a sophomore in high school. Um, uh, and then because she's far smarter than I am, um, I suppose, um, ended up at the Naval Academy and actually graduated as one of our classmates. So the, uh, the story of our meeting is, uh, is different, right? So, I, you know, I, I was a social guy, uh, still am a social guy. And so I was, uh, I was down at Navy um, reconning their foreign affairs conference. You know, I did SCUSA as a cadet for, for many years and I was, I was slated to run it for, uh, for, the, for our first year. And so I was down there reconning it and uh, you know, I'll be honest, like most Navy products, it was super boring. And so I, uh, I found myself at the Oak Club. And as chance would have it, my wife, uh, not interested in politics whatsoever, was a double E major. And she was getting extra credit by running the lighting for the conference. And, and she was really bored as well. So uh, we, we found ourselves both at the Oak Club in the middle of the afternoon. There's just the two of us. Um, and, you know, we hit it off. I, I thought, you know, really attractive young lady. And um, the weekend comes to a conclusion. And uh, Mike Eastman escapes unscathed. And my future wife uh, gets hit with PDA and breaking curfew and earns 100 hours. Ouch. So I was kind of committed <laughs> at that point to at least a follow-up call. <laughs> I love it. Hey, real quick, did she learn, like, French in Paris and... How many languages does she speak at the time when you met her? Yeah, she speaks five languages. It so embarrasses me. I struggle with English, and she speaks French and Italian and Vietnamese and English and Spanish, and probably a few more I don't know about. That's that is indeed impressive. And just so everyone know, you know, Mike was one of those guys who was in Scusa not to chase women. He actually cared about Scusa. So you know, <laughs> he, he he's 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 working on a different level, which we were all impressed by. <laughs> so mike tell me about tell me about the the kid situation you, you got three kids and how old are they you said they're in college or out of college and what, what what's their story yeah, so my oldest, grand, is, uh, my oldest is 29 and she graduated from mason she's working down in augusta she's the uh she manages the talent acquisition section for a firm down there 
Uh, my second is here in the area, going to Mason as well. She's uh, getting her degree in biology and she's working as a pharmacy tech. And then my son is in ROTC up at West Point. He's in his junior, I'm sorry, up at MIT. He's in his junior year at MIT. I said West Point because that's where he should be, but chose not to be, which is, you know, different sort of story there. Um, and then I got a five-year-old as well, you know, things happen in your life and unexpectedly, um, and he's not mine naturally, but he's mine for every other reason. Uh, so he's with us as well. And, you know, as I told you guys earlier, if, if someone had told me at 52, I would have a five-year-old running around and I'd be watching Fireman Sam eight times a day, I would have laughed, but it, it's where I find myself and, and I wouldn't have it any other way. He's a great little kid. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I see that guitar behind you. You a guitar player too? I wish. I'm in my son's room. Right? I was, as, even as we were coming on today, I'm arguing with, you know, so my son's a computer science guy, which, which is totally out of, out of my wheelhouse. Um, it's his guitar and it's his room that I, I work out of when he's at school. And it's totally wired for sound. This monitor is like eight feet long. Uh, everything is voice activated. I couldn't get the computer to turn on. The lights kept going and on and on. I was arguing with Google. Uh, but not mine. It's my boys. He's a. Uh, I took his skateboard off the wall because that totally has a Hello Kitty skateboard that normally hangs back there, and I had to take it down to maintain some level of credibility with you. <laughs> cool. Well, we have a couple classmates that are on the line with us. We can say hello. I know Brad Hammerker, Paul Smolchak are on the line. I think I see some other folks too. I can't quite see the list, but um, you guys can just pepper questions into the comment feed, and we'll definitely react to them as we go uh, through, the, through the interview tonight. So um, thanks everybody for joining us and we look forward to uh, continuing the Old Grad Podcast. Um, Mike, you've listened to a couple other uh, episodes? I have, yeah. And um, so the purpose of this was always from the beginning, it was uh, to, to really connect us to each other, fostering you know, better relationships. I, at our reunion, I listened to a number of people say that they really appreciated this, that this was almost like a, a form of therapy for them, was to reconnect with classmates, hear what's going on. You know, and also, quite frankly, after 30 years, there's less of a, a facade of bravado. Like, we're all just kind of people, and we allow ourselves to be a little bit vulnerable, and we're going through these life events together, you know? So, and that, that's a, a beauty of it. To celebrate each other's successes, it's to lift each other up where we, where we need to um, and it is to, um, and to also connect us better to West Point. Uh, and on this topic of lifting each other up, I have to just point out our hearts all go out tonight to the Palsisco family. Uh, we are so sorry and just completely heartbroken to hear about the loss of their son, David. Um, it's just such a, such a terrible situation. And John and Jamie and Peyton Palsisco, we are thinking about you and praying for you. Uh, and your family. And also, this week uh, marked an anniversary of having lost our classmate, uh, Bill Hecker. So we keep the Hecker family in our thoughts and prayers. And then we also have classmates that have lost some parents, Moni Washington and um, um, Jeff Leroy, uh, who have also lost their parents this week. And so we're so sorry. And we're here for each other, right? That's the whole purpose of this, because, you know, life's a long haul. We've been on these parallel journeys for the last 30 years. We have a, a common beginning and a shared value system and it's something for us to go through together. So we're there for each other. So 
Um, so Mike, that being said, which, which of the podcasts you've listened to were memorable to you? What were the things that you kind of like pull out or it's like things that made you smile or things that, you know, you really just thought about as good memories or, or anything like that? Yeah. So, um, to, to, to be fair, right. I kind of gravitated towards the folks that were in E2 and you've done a, a number of those for, for whatever, as, as luck would have it. Um, and honestly, listening to, to Tim Burnham talk about his journey meant a lot to me, right? I mean, I, didn't, I, I lived like two doors down from Tim um, and honestly was a little bit upset at myself for not understanding um, really where he was and, and, and maybe, you know, what was, in, what was going through his life. And then John Garrell too, I listened to his, a um, couple of the others. Uh, I guess to me, right? I mean, you've already touched on it, Jamie. It's, as I reflect on myself, um, you know, at the beginning of this, you get out of West Point, for whatever reason, at least my failing, um, I viewed people through a lens of competition, um, which wasn't healthy. It wasn't necessary. Um, and it was my own ambition, probably getting in front of me more than anything else, but to, to hear the folks that come on and just talk honestly about, you know, what, where, where they've done well and, and where they've struggled just means a lot, right? Because it, it resonates with me. It, we, you know, as you said, we're all people. And, and at the end of the day, there's there's a lot to be gained by knowing you're not alone in, in this in this journey. And speaking about not being alone, I mean, this journey, this transition from army life to civilian life is a big, big, big transition. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of us, a lot of you, I should say, that have made this transition in the last year. So it's good to connect with all of you and really kind of be there to support you as you go through this transition. Yeah. Um, so you missed our reunion because you were still actively engaged in the, in, in, in the army and actively engaged. What, what were you doing during our reunion? That was in September of this past year. Yeah, I was in Afghanistan. That was sort of my, the last hurrah for me for a lot of reasons. Um, but uh, I was in uh, Kandahar. I ended up being the last uh, commanding general of Kandahar. Uh, and as we collapsed, you know, it became Kandahar and Helmand, and then it became everything south of the Mason-Dixon in, in the country um, as things scaled down. Uh, so it's a busy time, but yeah, I'm not able to uh, not able to get there. Yeah, we miss you for sure. But you know, there will be future ones. It's it, for me is that's one of the biggest difficulties i guess of 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 the whole reunion process and like we did a my company did a little get together a year and a half or two years ago in the dominican republic and we had everybody except for the active duties folks you know and chuck Pouchet was in iraq and amuso george was doing something with the um army palm budget and dave baxter was otherwise engaged and those were our last three and uh, Bax is still holding down the fort. Bax is, he is the alpha and the omega. He's the first one in because he's prior service. He's been the last one out because he managed to finagle some kind of extension as a colonel. So he's keeps on going. Um, but you know, it was, it was sad to miss them during that time. And there's probably been so many points in time, sacrifices that you've made, your family has made. And, you know, I, I, for one, I'm so grateful for those sacrifices and I'm hoping that in the future, the next 50 years of life that we have, there'll be so many more opportunities for you to engage with our class and do those kind of things. Yeah, yeah here, here. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, when I looked up, uh, you know, Mike's uh, picture in the howitzer to get ready for this interview, it's like my God. And I thought I saw him just two days ago. He hasn't changed a bit. He looks exactly <laughs> the same. So uh, I think you get least changed, uh, voted least changed if you show up on these reunions. And it does speak to the sacrifice you made. I mean, how many of reunions you've had, you know, we've had, you've been to like one of them. Is that right? Did I hear that right? Yeah. 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 Mike's been delivering the service that uh, uh, we all admire. So hats off to you, man, really. And on the, on the fitness front, tell us about, like you, you say you're still, you're, you're, you are your cadet weight, I think, right? Or close to it. You're, you're well, you got to tell them that story when we, you're a, a, a plebe or a new cadet. Is that the we, right We got to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's where yeah, we're okay. going for sure. Okay. This is awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, same weight for the last 25 years or so, although it's getting a little bit harder, but I'm still hanging in. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I showed up at West Point. Uh, at a, a massive fight weight of 121 pounds. Um, and I don't know what I, I, you know, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking, um, but I wasn't ready. Uh, as a soccer player, I'd never lifted anything heavier than a soccer ball in my whole life. Um, so I get to, to Beast and, uh, you know, the, the memory of Beast, it stays with me. And I hope with none of the folks that were in Beast with me, but it stays with me is the day that, you know, it was early days and uh, they, they haul me in front of the, we had just done PT. I don't know what it was, probably a, a practice APFT or something, you know, and the fumes of the old sanitation plant were still in the air. And uh, my, my team leader hauls me in front of the company, the beast company, and then has me do push-ups as everyone circles around. And I'm just struggling to get to 40 um, and humiliated. Right, totally humiliated, and he was just, you know, wearing me out, and and uh, and I was not taking it well, uh, and, and I held that again. I mean, I tell you, if I, I won't name them, but if I to, to this day, if we cross in a dark alley, only one of us is leaving. But, <laughs> but um, that was a turning point in my life. I mean, I went to the gym the next day, and I have not missed ever since. You know, and that's forty pounds later. You know, and I got to where I needed to be. Um, it was probably for totally the wrong reasons initially, but at the end, right over over time, um, it was a great thing, right? I mean, I just I'm, I'm a better person for it, uh, and uh, you know, I don't know the motives at the time, uh, uh, but in retrospect, I, I really should be grateful because it's made a difference in you know who I am as a as a person, who I was as an officer, as a leader. So, of the three of us on this call, I think Bernard still may get the. Uh the the physical fitness award because you still run like uh, i don't six, know six thirty minute mile what, what, what what's, your, what's your two mile time mike oh i don't know uh it's not six thirty anymore yeah but but you're working out regularly every day every what day you don't miss a single you don't miss a single day every day you work out every day 365 days a year if you I do can. something different. that's not bad yeah all that's right, well, my I hope goal. you're mixing that's it my, up, man. That's my goal for this year. 365 for this year, I want to try to do. All right. That's an ambitious goal, Jamie. So no, but I think if you mix it up, realistically, you could do it if you mix it up. If you're not, I mean, you're not doing the same thing every day. Like, you know, one day you might do like a run, the next day you do yoga, the next day you do weightlifting, you mix it up. Good. Yeah. Yeah. There day. you go. Go for a swim. 
Right. Yeah. We should we should use this opportunity to give a plug here to the 91 Healthy Leaders cohort, which was put together really as a byproduct of this podcast. And it's through um, our classmate, um, Tracy Fisher, and she is a professional coach and she gives us the nuggets of her wisdom and we meet monthly and we have some accountability buddies that we go back and forth. And there's been a, a really good, I think, healthy exchange. It's not just about physical fitness. It's about mental uh, mental health, mental, you know, um, uh, wellness and relationships. And, you know, the one thing that I will say that I found at our reunion that was common, a common, common struggle that we all go through two common struggles. One is aging parents dealing with aging parents. And the other one is raising kids. Like kids definitely are like the variable and that you don't control. And somebody said this to me too recently, that you are only as happy as your least happy kid. And coming through COVID and all the other bullshit that these kids have been through, every, I've got four kids of my own ages, you know, 16 to 23. Each one of them has some kind of a legacy effect of COVID, I think, and trying to parent through that. That's something that we all shared a lot. And that's the beauty too of this group we have, you know, the, the ability to be vulnerable, the, the ability to share uh, just concerns and, and strife with, with one another and, and heartbreak. Um, that's, that's what we got going. We're so blessed to have each other for that. Yeah, I I've done two sessions with Ch James or with Tracy and that, that healthy leaders group and, uh, give it two thumbs up. They were both wonderful. Uh, I hope she listens to the podcast and knows we're giving her a shout out. She's she's doing another one coming up here, I think, too. I think it's January 27th. Yeah. January I just 27th. saw that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So you guys I'll can... tell you, if I can tie this into our program, just the program I'm in right now, we've reached out to Tracy because I think what she does is phenomenal. Um, and, and we're really close to getting her to cut some videos for us so we can share that with really all soldiers that are transitioning. You know, just to just to give them a perspective, because I think she's really good and, and she's got a lot of credibility when she when she talks to these folks. Um, and so we're, we're trying to bring her into our program on a more permanent basis as well, because I, I really think the more people that hear what she does, you know, the better off we'll be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about your program, Mike. What, what is this idea and how can we help you? Yeah. So, um, so I just, I took over as the executive director of what we're called ETS sponsorship and really what it is, it, it grows. So two things, one, um, folks that are leaving active duty, regardless of rank, are frankly committing suicide way too much. And they're, they're doing it at rates, you know, two to three times higher than their age group in the general populace. And so that's really where we, we start, right? How do, you, how do you prevent this sort of a negative outcome? And then for me personally, I go through the tap process and I'm up at, at Fort Drum as the DCG up there and I'm watching, you know, several hundred young people go through this process every month. It was in my portfolio a and I leave it just my personal opinion. It was too late. It was too much and it was too fast. And so we're not really doing justice to folks and preparing them for what is a significant life change, whether it's four years or 40. So 
we've created a program. I say we, I should take no credit for. I've joined a program that has grown over the past five years that does a couple things. It, it connects with people that are going to transition up to a year before they leave the service. So they have time to build a relationship and think about what they want to do with their life. And then it connects them with a sponsor that has already transitioned or is just a civilian leader in their community. Um, and it focuses on where they want to go. So Sergeant Eastman is leaving in a year. We, we take an inventory of what he wants to do with his life, what his family wants to do, et cetera. And then we ask him where he's going. And then we'll connect him with a sponsor, a trained sponsor from the community. So if I'm going back to Lawton, Oklahoma, for some God unknown reason, I have a sponsor from Lawton, Oklahoma that's on the receiving end, just like we had on active duty. And we're finding great results, right? It sounds simple. Uh, it's not. Uh, but it sounds pretty simple just to have someone to talk to because there's a lot of money being thrown at this right now. And there are literally 45,000 VSOs in the U.S. today that are out there and they exist to help people do this. But ultimately, as a transitioning service member, you are left to your own devices to figure out which one of those is useful or not, which one of those does provides the services you need. And we're trying to clarify that for folks and give them someone that can help walk with them. That's sort of it in a nutshell. So you're kind of curating this list, this uh, 46,000 VSOs to say, this is, the, this is like works in this silo or that silo. This is great for attaching the job or mental illness, mental wellness or um, equine therapy or whatever. Yeah, That's everything all. from jobs to GI Bill to do you need a serviced animal of some sort? So there's an aspect of quality control. We vet all these folks and we find out which ones truly do deliver and which ones don't. Um, and then the local community aspect of it is fairly unique, right? We, um, the ability to connect you to where you're going so that there's a good landing when you get there is really where we put a lot of energy. So it's, it's really finding quality community partners across the country. Uh, we're in 10 states now, we'll be in 50 by you know, a year from now or so, we'll be in all 50. Um, and, and really, how can, how can our class help? How can West Point graduates help? We have a great initiative going with uh, AOG right now, where they're sort of testing the water with us. They're getting uh, 40 folks trained as sponsors. And the, the goal there is to match them up with younger graduates that are leaving after their commitment to, to sort of help them walk that journey. Uh, but if, it, if it's useful, and I think it will be, you know, the opportunity to expand to West Point chapters across the country as potential sponsors would be a great one, right? Because, you know, um, negative outcomes up, up to and including suicide, they don't, they don't discriminate by rank. Uh, we lose just as many young officers and, and older officers as we do young NCOs. Um, they don't discriminate by deployment, right? There's no, there's no correlation between how many times you deployed and, the, the, and, and how, how your transition goes. What I tell folks at the end of the day is, you know, we focus a lot. There's a, there's a narrative in the country that if you've served in combat, as many of us have had, you're somehow damaged goods. And, and I, I, I refute that out of hand. Um, there's a small percentage of folks that need a lot of help, but there's a big percentage of folks that will benefit by just a little help, even if that's just a once a month phone call that you can bounce ideas off of as you make this transition. And, and that's what we're really trying to provide. That's phenomenal. Uh, it seems to me that the, the challenge, I, I have a young man that works for me, he's not that young now, he's in his mid-30s, but he's a former um, E5, 82nd Airborne combat veteran, 
And he was describing just this deluge of information that was like coming at him and he just, he had to turn it off. It was just information overload. And so, uh, and so that's one of the big challenges. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, God, God bless the VA, right? And I talk to the VA leadership all the time as we try and navigate, how do you best do this? Um, but I'm pretty frank with them as well, right? Every Monday I get 12 emails um, from different parts of the VA sending me to 12 different websites. Um, and they just go straight to spam now because I don't have the ability to absorb it all. Uh, and I don't have the time to navigate it. Uh, so what we really need to do is put the service member at the core of what we're doing uh, that, that, that's the focus. The focus is not on the process around them, which is where we find ourselves most of the time. You know, the, the, it, it's really what's right for each individual because not everybody needs the same kind of help. Very few people actually. I've yet to find like a one size fits all. Every one of these, every individual has different goals, aspirations, family life, spousal situation. Uh, and you only get there by, by making the service member the core of what you're doing. Bernard? Yeah. So uh, real quick, Mike. So let's, this sounds really interesting to me. Let's say I wanted to be a sponsor who helps someone do a transition. You know, who do I contact to get the training and then be part of the program? I assume it's not, I mean, I don't know what kind of commitment it is, but I'm tell, tell, for someone like me who might be interested in this, tell them, tell them what that, that journey looks like. And then also, would you tell, tell the group a little about that data piece? I thought that was really fascinating. I was surprised that it doesn't exist, but you talked about how we don't have, we're not monitoring good data on our outcomes. And I thought that was a wonderful initiative that sounds like you're working on. Sure, so the, the becoming a sponsor is, is, is pretty straightforward and I'm trying to make it easier as I, you know, as I, as I sort of join this organization. But the, the easiest way is just really www.etssponsorship.com. And then you just click, I wanna be a sponsor. And we have a range of options there. Um, we're the only program in the country that's, it's VA, we're VA certified top to bottom. We're in a public private partnership with them. And what we'll do is assess where each potential sponsor is coming from. So on, the, on one end of the spectrum, if you are a civilian and you just have a good heart and you wanna help a service member, but you have no real relation to the military, then we have a, a series of online courses, three, three blocks of online courses that we'll take. It will walk you through in small groups with, with a sponsor, with a, a trainer, um, that kind of familiarizes you with the military culture. There's a lot of F-bombs dropped just so no one is scared. Um, that, that's how sometimes soldiers talk. Uh, we talk about difficult conversations, understanding where a soldier is or a service member of all, any really any service member in their life. And then we have the VA come in with some psychologists and talk about indicators of potential negative outcomes up, into, up to and including how you treat potential suicidal ideations, et cetera. And then um, we kind of, uh, get them up to speed with the resources that are out there without trying to make them an expert. Uh, so that's sort of on the one end of the spectrum. On the other end, if you are already a peer mentor or you're already working with red, white, and blue or AWP or any of the other sort of, you know, first tier uh, VSOs in the, in the space already, then it's really an accelerated two-hour block where we just familiarize a potential sponsor with our technology. 
Um, and that gets to the second part. And that's really what, what, we, what I've tried to do is when you make a service member the core of what you're doing, we've created a series of dashboards. So every individual that leaves the service has their own individual action plan. Um, and that action plan covers all the social determinants of health. So medical, educational, employment, family, religious, you know, physical, et cetera. We, we capture all that and then we give them sort of a checklist of, of activities that is shared with the sponsor and shared with the community they're going to. So there's a common operating picture, you know, to use the army parlance for every single person. And that's a way where we can connect folks and kind of track their progress from 12 months before ETS to 12 months after. When you aggregate all this data for all the folks that are enrolled, uh, you start to see some really interesting things. And, and I'm working with Soldier for Life. I'm working with Marine for Life. But as you sort of said, Bernard, there, there are no like facts in the space right now. Uh, the, the Army has asked me already, Mike, can you tell us how many soldiers that leave have a job after 30, 60, or 90 days? And I, I sat there the first time. I was like, surely you're kidding. Surely, surely someone tracks this. Um, but they don't. Mm. So we aggregate this data and we can track now how long it takes to get a job and how long it takes in each state to get a job. So I can tell now veterans, these are, depending on what you want to do, good states, not as good states. Same thing for utilizing your GI Bill to go to school. Same thing if you know your, your spouse has a credential that you want to transfer from state A to state B. Does it work or does it not? We wrap all these things up and the goal ultimately is a year or so from now is to sort of publish a veteran state of the nation yeah. um, to inform folks. I mean, the Military Times does this to an extent, uh, but they're really focused on GI Bill utilization. I'm talking about we have 50 states and six territories. This is what the transition journey looks like when you pick state X as your destination. Everything from relative income to employment opportunities, to educational opportunities and what have you. You know, think that the US News and World Report for, for colleges, but we're, we're kind of taking it on for veterans and states. Mike, I sent to you a paper actually written by our classmate, Doug McCormick. It's a little, a little older now, it's a 2018 document, but this concept was trying to look at just like the landscape of all the VSOs and like, who's the higher performing ones? How do you kind of fit the pieces together? And so, um, like who, who are, where, what are those high-performing VSOs that you see? Like where, where are the big players? Like where are there places where we are performing well in that whole VSO space? Yeah, so, um, you know, I've engaged with a lot of the, probably the larger ones now, uh, but Doug does, I thought, first of all, that was a great paper by Doug. I thought I read it as soon as you sent it to me. I thought it was really good, really helpful way to sort of understand the space. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in an official partnership with America's Warrior Partners um, because they, they do great work, but they're focused on helping communities receive veterans. They're not really focused on the transition journey. Uh, Mike Lennington over at Wounded Warrior does a great job, but they're focused on a subset of the population. Um, and, and I'm really trying to be as broad as I can. I don't care the character of your discharge. I don't care how long you serve. I just care that you served and you're becoming a, a civilian. Uh, and then you, you, you know, you get your USO, you get your Red Cross. Um, the next tier below that, there are some really quality community level VSOs out there. 
that are not, they have no name recognition. Um, the, the Veterans Peer Access Network in LA County does a phenomenal job receiving. Um, there's some great ones. I work with a couple of VSOs in Wisconsin that are first rate. There's, there's a couple up in Washington State. Texas, uh, Bear County does a good job. Um, but their challenge and the niche that we kind of are trying to fit here, if you think about it more broadly, the day you take off your uniform, you have disappeared from the face of the earth for the DOD. And the VA, where most of your services come from, doesn't know you exist until you walk in the front door. Which is unbelievable that that is the case. I was going to go to that point. How can we not have these two behemoths share information with one another? It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Like it's electronic, it's an electronic file just going from one part of the government to another. But for whatever reason, those data systems don't talk to one another. I know about this because of my work in homelessness. It is unbelievable. It is unbelievable that we have this problem. Yeah, no, it's crazy, right? And, and so that's the niche we're stepping into, right? Because I'm getting the data and I'm going to host it outside of the federal government. And if, I, if I'm going to be the bridge, then I'll be the bridge. Um, it took us a year, but we now can shoot data into the VA, whereas the DOD cannot. Um, and we can receive data from the DOD. Uh, but trying to get those two departments to share data together for whatever reason, you know, although, you know, I guess to give credit where, or just a reality check, right? I, so I spent some time at Army Cyber. I was disappointed to find out that the Army as a service uh, when I was there had 134 different networks. You'd think we would have one, but we had 134, which means 134 different IMOs with different policies and different firewalls. So it's probably not surprising, but in the abstract, it's ridiculous that they don't just ship your file to the VA when you leave. We should just get the data from like China or Russia. They probably have it all organized <laughs> and just shoot it right, right back for us, you know? Yeah. Jamie, Jamie, don't worry too much. We have a West Point star man on the case. So I feel very good about the, uh, the future on this thing. So go well, on. Hats off to you for doing that. We, we should definitely talk more offline because uh, I've got some, some experience in the space too. And um, definitely want to do whatever I can to help you. We have a couple of comments coming through here. Alex Rogers is talking about how he's been contacted numerous times about his, uh, you know, role for transitioning veterans and, um, and so we're, we're, we're really, uh, happy to be able to do whatever we can to support you, um, for sure. I definitely want to talk to you about, about some more about this whole VSO space. I think about this, this, there's an organization, um, run by General Salisbury, uh, called Code of Support Foundation. Do you know, do you know of them? Yeah. Uh -huh. So they, they supposedly have the beginnings of this database called Patriot Link. That is the listing of all of these VSOs and like what their budgets are, what they do, kind of a quality control measure of, of how impactful they are. And so that's, that's another potential place to start. So, but hats off to you for, for all that you're doing and continue to serve our country. How did you land this job, by the way? How did, like, how did this come into your, into your world as an opportunity when you were transitioning? Yeah, so the folks that do this, um, Mike Loesch, Joe Geraci, a couple of grads, you know, a couple of years behind us started this very small in New York. And I had crossed paths with Mike uh, and, and, and most of this team early on. Um, honestly, this started uh, in a different place. 
the idea several years ago, as I was contemplating, you know, the end of the road for me as an army officer, um, was to take what I had learned on the joint staff and in the in the cyber world, and go into the for-profit world in terms of sort of a uh, regulating data, application of AI sort of thing. Uh, and then as I'm looking around and I'm frustrated with my own journey and what I'm seeing and, and how, how folks are left to kind of flounder, um, the application of those same things in this space just made sense for me. And, and so, you know, it probably at one point, let's just pilot what we can do and show them how to fix the problem became I want to fix the problem full time because it's going to take that kind of energy and commitment, but it needs to be done. We actually had Joe Geraci on this podcast once before uh, talking with Pete Gaudet when we were uh, kind of digging into the problem of, uh, of, of soldier suicide. So uh, he's, he's a stud. Uh, you got a good, good guy there that you're, that you're connected to. So that's great. Um, so let's, let's maybe roll back the hands of time and we're, we've done the here and now let's talk about, how you got to West Point in the first place, growing up, your army, army brat, your dad was a ROTC guy, Vietnam guy, didn't think a whole lot of West Pointers. I want to hear about all that story kind of go, going into your interest in West Point. Yeah, so I was the oldest of four um, and army officers didn't, my, my mom never worked. Uh, army officers didn't get paid a tremendous amount back in the day, I think relative to how we're doing now. We've made a lot of progress. So, um, you know, the Army was all I knew growing up. I think I counted 13 moves by the time I was in high school. And, and that's just what I thought we did. Right? I mean, it never occurred to me that this was different than some other folks. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, getting toward the end of high school. And uh, my dad was, I think, ch child six of seven or nine. I lose count at times. But he was very much like the 1950s type parent. Um, so the house I grew up in, um, which was fine, right? I mean, I had a great childhood, but it was very straight, it was very disciplined. You know, dinner was at five. It wasn't at 501. Uh, lights out were at nine. Um, I still remember I was a high school senior. I was asking my dad if I could borrow the car and you could be home at 10. If you're not home, if you're not home at 10, then you don't have the car anymore. Right. And I just, I sort of took that for granted, but I guess maybe not everyone had that experience in life. I don't know. Made, made it hard to have dates, but, but okay. Um, so yeah, then my dad comes in one day and he goes, hey, son, you're going to college. I'm like, yep, Roger out. And he goes, and I'm not paying for it. Okay, end of conversation. Because um, he couldn't, right? Four kids, single income. So I'm looking around, you know, how do I, how do, I do this? Um, I applied for a bunch of places. I got some soccer scholarships, but none of them was enough to actually pay for anything. Because I, you know, again, 120 pounds. There's not a big market for dudes that small in the in the d1 soccer world so i applied to west point navy all the academies um and you know it was it was a tough sell with my dad my dad had some bad experiences in vietnam i think he worked for a tank commander that you know just didn't they didn't gel um and he sort of i think transferred that to west pointers in general in the 70s so uh you know i the old green folder comes in and uh, my mom was over the world, right? I mean, A, boys going to school, B, free, C, army, good. Um, my dad, on the other hand, 
uh, let's just say nonplussed. Um, you know, here you go. Looks like you're going to school. End of conversation. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it, it was what I wanted to do. I wanted to, probably like most young men, I wanted to emulate my dad. I really respected what he did. Um, it was a way to go to school. I won't say I was a kid that aspired to go to West Point growing up because I didn't really know. My dad went to Creighton. Um, so it wasn't part of the, you know, the immediate family sort of fiber. Um, but it was an opportunity and I'm glad it worked out. So oh, good. I'm curious, did you have a plan B if you didn't get into West Point? And the reason I ask is I was faced with a similar thing. I didn't get money for college. And I said, well, hell, if I don't get to West Point, I'm just going to go join the Army and use the GI Bill and have them pay for college. I still love the idea, see the world, you know, get some money. And, you know, you don't know what you want to do as a kid anyway. You know, what, what did you talk? Did you talk to your dad maybe about enlisting? What, 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 was it, what were those type of conversations like? You ever? Um, no, we, we, we didn't really like have those sort of conversations. <laughs> Um, I mean, if I had a backup look, I mean, I was a pretty good student. So I, at the end of, at the end of the journey, I had some options. They weren't great. I think I got a scholarship to like Southwest Missouri State um, by doing well on the um, PSAT or something, yeah. you know, so some regional options, but really I was all in for the academy. That was. And, that and was you were in Oklahoma at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, is your dad still around? Yeah, he's retired down in Florida. How proud he must be of his son, the general. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, our relationship is a lot better. You know, I, I lost my mom to uh, brain cancer when I was in Iraq as a battalion commander. Um, and I, my relationship with my dad had been, I mean, it had been good, but it had been kind of distant growing, over time. Um, but I flew back, you know, I flew back out of Iraq to the middle of the tour. Uh, and I spent the last couple of weeks with her as she, uh, you know, she fought this, but ended up not winning that fight. Um, and then it was just me and my dad at that point. I was the oldest. Um, and I, I think he was really appreciative of, of the fact that I made the effort to kind of share that burden with him. And so we're, we're, we're good. I mean, we, we, we talk now, um, but we don't talk Army. I think, you know, my dad was one of those guys when, when the Army was done, he was done with the Army. And so he talks about other things, staying off his grass. <laughs> yeah. He, he, uh, he did, did you say in the, I think you said in the um, pre-call notes that he didn't have a lot of respect for West Pointers in Vietnam, right? He wasn't like super impressed by the West Point chain of command that he had. Yeah, no, he, he it was hard. I mean, my, I think it was a hard time overall. My dad had he graduated from ROTC. He, he did his first assignment he did a year in Korea um, and then in 68 he went to Vietnam he did two tours there and he came back he had already commanded his company so he's been in the army three years he's done with company command just because of the losses they were taking over there what was his branch he was an artilleryman as well mm, okay and um, yeah I mean I have recollections of my dad telling me not to be a ring knocker and not to talk down to NCOs and to respect people. And, you know, and I think a lot of that was born out of his experiences, but uh, I'm, have, I'm very hesitant to paint West Point in the seventies or the products of West Point 
with a broad brush, right? Because we've all worked for folks that we kind of wish we hadn't. And so I'm I'm probably more comfortable saying, you know, he may have just run across a guy that that wasn't all that good and just happened to be a graduate and didn't really represent what we as a collective body of graduates represent. So I want to, we didn't talk in the pre-call about this, but you mentioned you lost your mom while you were in battalion command in Iraq. Was yeah. she diagnosed like during the tour that you found out that she had this terminal cancer and then you probably had this challenge of deciding like, when do I come home? Right. Like to try to time it, I suppose. Like how, how was that? How was that dynamic for you? Yeah. I mean, I've learned over time to compartmentalize because I've had to. Um, she had a very aggressive cancer, the same sort of type of brain cancer that McCain had. So we found out probably, and I was already deployed, um, probably September that she had had this um, illness and went downhill so quickly that I came back in December, right around the seven month point of the tour, it was a 12 month tour. And um, she had died in January. So it was very sudden. The whole journey was probably for her four months. Um, and it was hard, right? Um, you put on a face, really, because I'm losing guys in combat. Uh, so it's not the time for me to feel sorry for myself or feel sorry for my, my mom. I mean, she's doing the best she can. But, um, you know, I think you... you you owe it to the folks you lead to be present for them in a really difficult time. Mm. Um, so I did the best. I wasn't perfect. I, by, by, by no margin was I perfect. There are things that I know I could have done better decisions. I know I would have made with a clearer head if I wasn't trying to juggle this. Um, but you know, you just, you compartmentalize. Um, I'm just really glad that I made it back in time to spend, you know, the last 10 or 12 days with her before we lost her. Wow, that's really powerful. It really is. Um, I had a chance to spend, I, I walked for 12 miles about two weeks ago with Kenny Mintz, who was a battalion commander in Afghanistan. And he was reflecting on some of the learnings of his battalion command as we spent 12 miles walking in the freezing cold. And, and uh, it wasn't actually, actually wasn't that cold at all. It was, uh, it was a nice day out in Carlisle. But I'm sure that that's like, like you, like him, these are pivotal, pivotal life experiences that you continue to kind of go back to and relive uh, quite a bit, I, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, I think we, I mean, we all know, right? We all know we're going to lose folks. We're going to lose our parents at some point. We all know. We all know inherently that kids are going to make bad decisions at points and accidents are gonna happen, uh, but you know it in the abstract and then you live it um, and then you reflect on it. And you think, you know, who, who, who am I really as a person and what truly is important? Um, and I think that just comes with time, right? And sometimes it comes with experiences you wish you didn't have to live through, but you do. And so you just learn from it and, and you move forward. Um, you know, that's, it is what yeah. it is. I lost my stepfather when I was in Korea. Uh, he died of cancer uh, when I was when I was uh, in Korea. And I, I recall trying to time getting home, the same kind of thing, having this dilemma because he had a very, very he had a mesothelioma, which is like basically a death sentence. Like I assume your mother had GBM, like last uh, geoblastoma. 
Yeah. But by the way, our classmate Carl Avery passed away from that same that same awful uh, brain cancer. But the the I remember feeling like a, almost like a guilt because I would go back to my unit and I would forget all about what's happening at home because you have like this completely different experience that nothing in that nothing in that day to day is reminding you that you've got a family member who's dying back home. You know, and so it's almost like this bizarre kind of guilt that you feel for not thinking enough about it. I think that's what that's the experience that I had at that time. Yeah, no, I think I, I share that same thought. I mean, there you, you do think about it. I don't think you push it out, but you think about it. You know, it's two in the morning. You're done with your patrols for the day. You're, you're laying down and then you think about it and then you feel kind of crappy for a while um, and then you go back to work. Um, you know, and then at least for me, right at the end of this, when we knew that she wasn't going to make it, then I, then the guilt starts to pile up even more because now I'm thinking, man, I should have been calling every night at two o'clock when, when I was laying down because I didn't know I only had so many days left. Um, yeah, I'm with you. It's tough. Let's go back again to the West point. We're kind of jumping all around try to stay with the story arc of the podcast. It's, it's, we, it's, it's, it's tough to do this all the time, but so we were talking about West Point, your dad, the impression of West Point. And so what was it like going in there? Who, like, tell me about, do you recall, what were the poignant moments that you remember of being a cadet? Was, was it a beast? Was it like some other type of experience that, that you can reflect on and think about your time as a cadet? Um, you know, West Point for me is a little bit of a blur. I mean, I, I kind of mentioned how I was raised I thought it wasn't that hard, right? It wasn't really that much of a change. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll just preempt this, right? I, I never walked an hour. Zero. You're zero hours. Zero. Zero hours, yeah. So, you know, maybe I don't get good credibility for being a cadet. I don't know, but. Um, or, or you didn't get caught. That's all. You didn't get well, caught. Yeah. Uh, but it just, it, for me, it wasn't hard. I grew up with a house of rules and you follow the rules right it didn't even occur to me that there might be other fun things to do this wasn't part of my makeup um yeah so i mean i like i kind of had a good time as a cadet sort of i mean i don't know if anyone has a great time um and you forget the times you didn't like when you look back on it uh, but you know i had some i had some great friends there you know and, and I, I room with matt thomas multiple times um I kind of had a good time there. I, I, I enjoyed the social department. You know, look, I was a mechanical engineer uh, until the end of yearling year. Um, and I decided that that was um, too hard and really boring. And so I switched over to social. And, and at that point it was, it was all systems go, right? Cause I, I just, it was, it was better. I was interested in it. It was, you know, there's no right answer when you write a paper. It's just how well do you make your argument? There is, however, a right answer when you're building the bridge. So I like living in the gray. Yeah. So is everybody hearing this? Mike <laughs> even enjoyed his social paper. Okay. Is that is that on the record? Is that is that in the archive, uh, Jamie? <laughs> and you and you were a social piece. So we're going to get to that too because that yeah. that's really fascinating to kind of like tick and tie back those two experiences. Did you, we, we were talking on the pre-call, did you remember what your social paper was on? We were talking, I don't know if you remember what it was about. Yeah, you talk, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I wrote about um, the potential loss of liberties um, as a result of terrorism. 
something something along those lines. Wow. Pretty uh pretty interesting and prescient, I suppose. Very like, prescient, yeah, yeah, for real. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea what my search paper was on. I I can't remember it, but I do remember that there were some seriously interesting personalities in that social department when we were there those those peas i think they've also well renowned for it being for being um personalities the social department i was wondering did you listen to the to the podcast with general bramlett just the beginning uh, i did i did drop in on that one though so he was talking about how he had problems when they first had these initial electronic bulletin boards where people were just like pontificating and disagreeing with policies and the administration it was, it was all these it was like all these like peas from this one specific department that to be named that was that was giving him a bunch of shit for his policies and i was wondering it's like it's got to either be the social department or the english department i think those are the two like everybody else kind of just goes to the flow i would think is and dpe and mill art probably are you know, applauding whatever discipline thinks he's laying down and it was it had to be one of those two, I would think, social or English. Yeah, I, I would put my money on social. Did you ever have um Captain Demchek? I sure did. You did? I remember when she used to come into class that one time with the 70s hippie stuff on. I still remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Chris um Demchek, yeah. she went to Berkeley, I think, right? And she had this buddy. Her friend is uh, Captain Charbonneau. I think what her first name was. I, she was the she was on uh, the the speech department, like OIC. And I did the speech team with me and Shane Zender and a few other of our classmates. And she was from. She might have gone. She went somewhere in California too. She didn't go to Berkeley, but she went to some other like, you know, like pretty lefty school out there. And we went out to her hometown, and. Shane Zender was getting drunk with her old man. Her father was just, you know, great guy and serving us beers and everything. And so he lets on that Captain Charbonneau has a tattoo on her ass. That he like, <laughs> oh God. Yeah. And so Shane is like, this is great information to have. Like, I, I love knowing this. I love knowing that, that I know this and she doesn't know that I know this. And how am I going to find the way to get her to admit that she has a tattoo on her ass. And, um, and so we had this, this young plebe who today is now assistant secretary of the army. His name is Doug Bush. You know, Doug Bush, he's like ASALT, assault guy. And so, so young cadet Bush, we said, you know, Bush, you're a plebe. What kind of tattoo are you going to get? You got to like, everybody in the army has to get a tattoo. It's, it's a mandatory thing. So what, what are you going to get? He's like, what, what do you mean, sir? I, I was like, yeah, we, we all have to get as a mandatory thing. He's like, so what, what do you mean? Like, Ma'am, do you have a tattoo? I was like, bam. He's like, per it perfect. Like, right on, right on cue. This stupid plebe says this to Captain Charbonneau. <laughs> and she had to admit it. And it was so great, man. It was so great. Shane was a genius at that kind of stuff. Shane wow. Zender. Do you know him, Shane Zender, B3? I don't. That dude is so funny. He would he would do all kinds of crazy stuff like that. So, so you so you were pretty close to getting a road scholarship, right? So tell us that story. Um, yeah. So, uh, 
you go through this process to, to, to do the roast, right? It's a series of interviews, cocktail party, great cocktail party, right? Which is nothing I would recommend you ever do for fun. Um, and then you compete at state level and then you go up to the region and national level. Um, I had done pretty well. Um, so I won, I won up, I won for Oklahoma. Um, there's two, two kids for each state get sent to the final. So, you know, you got a 50% chance at that point of getting a scholarship. Um, and the social department did a phenomenal job preparing us, you know, down, down to practice cocktail parties. I don't know that any other student anywhere in the country got practice cocktail parties except for West Point. So we did pretty well. I got to the, the final sort of set of interviews um, and things were going, going solid. But, you know, at the end of the interview, it's, um, you know, it's sort of the administrative section. And they're like, you know, Mike, um, um, you, I don't know what your plans are, but, you know, if you accept a Rhodes Scholarship, you, gotta, you can't be married, which was problematic for me. Um, because I was trying to work the joint service um, married couples thing, right? I was, I was, I got married a week. I was, we had plans, and I actually ended up getting married a week after we graduated. Um, and I, and I told him, you know, I, I can't do that. Uh, there's got to be a waiver or something. But um, I need to be married, or I'm not going to be stationed with my future wife. She's in the Navy. I'll never see her again. Um, and they were not willing to bend, and so that 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 was that. I just sort of. Um, self-selected out of that process at that point wow what a what a uh what a what a tragedy that you had to that that was the case but uh i respect the fact that you're you know going with your gut about the thing that's most important um how did you how'd you guys get engaged that that must be a story a little bit huh like did you like and where did you get married we, <laughs> yeah, that too. Oh, that's the Cadet Chapel. I don't know. No, neutral ground. We got we got married down at uh, down in uh, her, near her family's place in uh, Annandale in, in a church down here. Mm. So no, no academy, uh, no academy wedding. We actually did it in somebody's backyard, right? We we foot the bill ourselves. Um, so there's a lot of red solo cups and uh, folding tables at that one. It wasn't my favorite really kind of wet. My favorite kind of wedding right there. That's the best. Yeah. Mac oh. Macaroni salad, potato chips, folding chairs. That's what you need. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. Hey, tell tell everybody about your tradition on wearing the jersey based on who wins the Army Navy game. Yeah. So okay. So look, I mean, my house right every year we do an Army Navy party. We have to. My wife. Very close with her class. Uh, anytime we do this, there's probably 60 Naval Academy grads in my house. Um, and so we, you know, as as we started kicking this off, when I wasn't, when I, if I was home and not deployed, um, and we, that was that stage where Army was winning every year. And so uh, I foolishly, I said, I made a bet with my wife, who I love dearly, that whichever team won. The previous year, that would be the jersey that the kids would all wear to the next year's party. Thinking, right? I mean, thinking, I'm, I'm set for life. Yeah. And then we kind of went in a little bit of a, a rut. Um, and I'm looking back the other day. We just did the, the party here at the house for, for this year's game. We're looking back at the pictures, and I realized that my son, right, he's 21 now. I didn't see him wear an Army jersey for like 10 consecutive years. He has from little kid to, to, to grown adult Navy jerseys in his closet and no army. Uh, so that's what you get, right? I mean, it, it, we're turning the corner now, but it was some dark years in the Eastman house. 
So where did you get engaged? Um, at 500th night. Really? Yeah. Awesome. So like at West Point, she came up. Wait, did she, she wear her na- did she wear her Navy stuff for the um, 500th night, or did she just come as yeah, like? Yeah, no, she she wore her Navy stuff. I took a little bit of heat for that. Um, so I asked her to marry me out on the out on the the plane somewhere after the, afterwards. Um, I went down to their ring night. They they call it something else. Um, and I was dumb enough to wear my uniform to that. And they actually have a formal awarding of the ugliest date. Um, and it's a little like corsage thingy. It's quite flashy. I proudly wore that the entire evening. Um, you know, so that's what I get, right? But it was all worth it. That's pretty harsh. The ugliest date. I mean, that is harsh. Yeah, that's pretty harsh. That's a good tradition, though. That's, that's but I admire cool. your your chip spa, man. That's pretty <laughs> I didn't know about it until it was too late, Bernard. <laughs> Cadet uniform, man, and uh, <laughs> marching so, around Naval Academy. I'm going through this pre-call template, and I'm looking at some of the notes from your time as being cadet. And I think, you know, talking about cow year and stuff. Tell me the story about how you're firing oranges over parade practice. Like, what what, what did that entail? So, you know, we used to we lived in uh, Bradley Long in E2. And I just have this recollection. I don't remember exactly who was there. Or I wouldn't name them if I did. Um, but, but we had come across one of those like 20 foot long slingshots. And so we worked our way up to the roof. Um, and I think it was third and fourth reg doing their practice parading, you know, that sort of thing we used to do in circles. And you could hook this thing up like 50 feet across to the different air conditioning ducts. And then you'd back up to the end and it would wing an orange or whatever, and it would clear it would clear the plane. Um, and we were up there firing these things and, and and having a grand time until you know one of them fell short. I think it took some poor some poor cadet like out out of action. You uh, hit, mad like, like, that's mad, awesome. Mad scramble. Everyone's running for the hills. Yeah, I don't I don't know. One part of the government to another, but for what you might somebody's got uh, sound going there. Is that you, Bernie? I just Bernard? fixed it. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Cool. That's funny. That's, and so you, you hit him in parade practice with an orange that was launched off the top of Bradley Barrett. <laughs> That's what I hear. That's funny. That's funny. Um, so then you returned to West Point a few years later as a Soch P, like going like in the department that you were in as a cadet. And so what were your memorable? I mean, you were there for 9-11, I think, right? Yeah. So what were the what were the poignant memories you have from that time? Yeah, so, I mean, just in brief, right, really three. One, um, just the opportunity to teach. Uh, it was just awesome. And, and it was awesome for a lot of reasons. Um, I got to run the scholarship program for the academy. Um, and so the opportunity to really handpick, you know, you interview, you get 100 files, the top 100 cadets in the class. You interview them all, you get to pick 20. So I'm, I'm handpicking a class. Um, and then setting my own syllabus up and, and taking a place. So we went to Sing Sing. We had dinner with Bill Clinton. I mean, there's no set of experiences I've ever had in my life like that to prepare these kids to go on and compete for scholarships. That was a great experience. Um, being in Soch was just a lot of fun. Like-minded people, great classmates, great camaraderie. It really is a great department. Uh, it can, can, can border on the arrogant at times. Um, for 
for better or for worse, but because they're really well connected, many of them are very political, um, have aspirations, and I get it. But really great people. I would never, never replace that. Um, who was the um, Who was the head of social department when you were there? At the time, it was Russ Howard. Russ Howard. Um, um, he had become the dean. Russ Howard was the deputy. Moved up. Uh, Dan Kaufman started, uh, and then he was the dean uh, at a social. So Russ Howard moved up to be the uh, department head while I was there. And, and then um, in terms of memories, right, I literally was in the classroom teaching, teaching Soch on 9-11. Uh, and, and I remember uh, a lot of things, right? A lot of things run through your mind, right? And we're, we're sitting in the class. I don't remember exactly what we were talking about. Um, the call goes out, hey, turn your TVs on. We turn this on. Um, and we're, we're sitting there in a, in, a, in, a, in a class talking about international politics and causes of war. And I'm watching with these cadets, planes flying into buildings. Uh, and it, and it, I'll never forget it. Uh, and and the, the, the professors in the department that weren't teaching were scrambling to get their TA-50 and get in their cars and drive down to the city and help people. Uh, and those of us that were in the classroom, you're left, you know, you, you watch this. Um, and then the, the cadets are asking you what's going on and how do you evaluate this? What does it mean? Um, and, you know, not the first time in my life, but probably the most meaningful, I don't know what to tell them. Uh, I just don't know what to say. All I can do is watch just like them and try and process it. And it's just, you know, it's a tragic, tragic day that I still struggle to, to give meaning to it in a way that, that, that matters. Hey, that was hey. a... That was a, I just think about that as that that's the point in time where everything changed for our classmates like you, like the first third of the first third of your career was a peaceful kind of party time like you were not party time but you're training whatever but for the last 20 some odd years it's been just game on all the time I and mean, that just changes everything. And so I mean for myself or I think Bernard too, like, like I, I, I didn't have, well, I had the experience that I was mobilized for a year, but it's a whole different deal when you're mobilized. It's not, it's different from being active, 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 I think, but it's just, it's what, a, what, a, what a shift that took place for, for all of you that served. Yeah. You know, Mike, I'm kind of curious to get your take. You know, I, I was out of the army at that time. I was actually in grad school and one of my professors came to me and said, what do you think is going to happen? I said, I think we're going to war. I, that was like the first thing that kind of came out of my mouth. As, I mean, did, is that where you, it's like, did your mind go there as well? It's like, holy crap, we're going to go to war. I didn't, I, yeah, I didn't see any other way out of that. I mean, I, I, that's what I wanted to do, honestly, probably immaturely, but the, there was a price to be paid for that. I don't, right. I, I didn't feel like I could wear the uniform and not be committed to, you know, squ squaring this. Right, right, yeah. Hey, and tell everybody how you what what preparation you did to get in that social program. It's pretty impressive. Back to to teach. Yeah, which school you went through to? Um, yeah, so I um, I went to MIT, and um, the, I mean the long and short of it was uh, I'm glad that I did it. I don't know that I would do it again because it was quite possibly the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. It, 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 I was trying to 
knock out a PhD at the same time as the master's degree. Um, so that meant summer classes, classes over Christmas. Full, I mean, I, I didn't see my family for two and a half years. Did you have to do that? Or is that you said, I want to get a PhD for this time period that I'm here because this is my shot to do it? Yeah, that, that was self-inflicted. And I did okay. it not knowing what I was signing up for. And again, you know, and sort of um, I just and my personal ambition was getting the better of me. And it took about half a semester to realize I had bitten off more than I probably could chew. Um, and it, it, it was a struggle. It, it, you know, I was I, no kidding. I was taking same course load we took as cadets, but in grad school at MIT. And I was averaging eight books a week. And every week you were writing an eight or 10 page paper. And I was getting shredded. I was, I was getting shredded by, you know, 23 year old grad assistants that were telling me I didn't know how to write. Uh, and it, it was a very humbling experience. But, wow. um, you know, and I mean, I'm, honestly, I'm not the smartest guy, but I, I've never been in rooms where I was like intimidated necessarily by how smart people were until I got there. And, and then I was like, okay, these folks are at a different level than me. And the best thing I can do is keep my head down and just do what they tell me. Well, Mike, I hope you told them I, I can do 40 push-ups too. So, uh, <laughs> Take that. <laughs> so eight books a week. I mean, you can't possibly read the whole book. You must have like a technique for like speed reading or just getting to like, what, what, like, what would you start with the table of contents and go to the chapter headings and then just say, all right, you, you read the whole thing. Really? God, I could not. Yeah, read I mean, I'd like to say I was clever and had a system, but I didn't. It was brute force and ignorance. I would just stay up 20 hours a day and read everything. I would retain probably 5%. It was a phenomenal waste of time, but I did it. And then I felt better that at least I could honestly say I did it. So what's your reading like today? Do you still, I, I don't think you're reading eight books a week, but like, what do you, like, what, what are you reading now? What have you read? What's been impactful to you that you've recently read? Yeah, so I bounce back and forth. Um, I mean, I read a lot of fiction. I probably two or three fiction a week. Um, I just finished up War and Decision by Doug Fike because I was trying to you know, get a sense of how the inner workings of Iraq went and how that might look, you know, to try and understand what we did in the Afghanistan situation. A lot of parallels there. Um, I, I think uh, I, I would recommend uh, The Art of Peace. That's a great book uh, by Juliana Pallon that, um, yeah, she actually had me do the forward to it. And that's not why I recommend it. The forward is a piece of garbage I wrote in an airport one day. But the book itself is, is really phenomenal. It's, it's one of the rare books I've come across that kind of runs the arc of history and somehow ties contemporary events with the founding principles of the country and some, some real kind of really nuanced philosophical positions. Um, and then uh, Grit, right? I mean, I think Grit is a great book by Angela Duckworth, if folks haven't read that. That's kind of what's on my plate right now. Do you read them like in hard copy books? Are you reading on Kindles? Like I got them all on a Kindle now. I'm away from the books. Actually, I had books. Books was a problem. When you're reading eight books a week, that means you're buying eight books a week. So when I was a brigade commander, um, I got tired of toting these things around the country. And, and so we, uh, I just created a library in the headquarters and donated about 700 books. Um, left them there for, you know, the brigade sort of library as a, as a reference for folks. And uh, I've gone digital ever since. 
do you um like highlight stuff and save it a certain way do you have like any technique for that i'm always curious like scholarly people like you how do you how do you remember what you read where yeah well, I probably i don't right i mean I do do i have a system i highlight all kinds of stuff and i look at all i leave all kind of notes in the margin i can't recall one time where i've ever gone back and looked at something that i highlighted or put a note on so it's probably just a way to keep my attention on the page that i have not come up with a system for retention other than you know hope for the best so when you were at when you were at West Point now as a social having read eight paper or having read eight books a week, having written all these papers a week, were you did did you come in and say this course load for these cadets is just too light, it's too easy, the you know, core has it's just too simple for them. There we go. That's what I like. Um well I I, I guess it's a I'll give you a relative answer. Um on the one hand, when I'm with the scholarship class, I'm riding them really hard and I have really high expectations and I have no pity. On the other hand, I, uh, the other half of my day, I taught the early morning core squad class. And that was a lot of fun, but it's a totally different audience. You know, they're falling asleep, maybe 10% of them had read something. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you just, I, I probably should have done better, but you really get, you feel sympathetic after a while. It's, you know, it's kicking a puppy in the first couple of weeks. You know, it's easy to do and you get no satisfaction out of it because they haven't read it. They just got back from practice. Um, and I'm comparing them to these guys that are, you know, uh, excuse me, Major Eastford, uh, this fine point here on uh, sub note 27. Now, what do you think about that? You know, and then in the morning I got, uh, anyone remember the title of the book? <laughs> no, okay. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, they're all different. You take people the way they are. You had, I think you said there was 19 cadets that you had teed up for scholarships, the scholarship program. And what was your success rate with them? Yeah, 17, 17 and 19. 17 were scholars, road scholars, Marshall scholars. Mitchell. Mitchell. Yeah. That's an incredible, I mean, we have not had that kind of success rate in the past, like set henceforth, right? I mean, henceforth, we've not had that success rate. Was That was a record, is that right? Is that what I think it was. I mean, we've had some good years since then, but, you know, let's, to, to be honest, right, that's, that, that's all a function of timing as I look, look back at it, because mm. the kid, the quality of the cadets has been very consistent over time, uh, but you have to look at the fact that you know, when I took over the scholarship program, that was the year immediately following 9-11. And I think there was an opportunity there for the scholarship committees and these really prestigious graduate schools to express um, their support, even if it was subconsciously. Um, I, I just think that, I mean, we prepared them well, right? But at the end of the day, you're coming into a room, you're a cadet, you're in uniform, your essay very likely has touched upon the fact that you are preparing to lead troops in combat and you are personally touched by 9-11. Mm. That's a, such a compelling story yeah. that I just think everything lined up and I just happened to be with the program when it did. I mean, Jay Parker um, really was sitting on top and, and steering a lot of that. Al Wilner was on the faculty. 
Um, and really, so, you know, I had a bit part to play in that, but the cadets as a cohort just did really well. And I, I just have to think that some of that was just good luck and timing. Probably. I mean, I know a lot of these things are just like that too. Like there's a little bit of a time and chance. And there's also, there's an intention about that too, recognizing that these young people were going to be in critical, pivotal leadership roles in the coming decade. So to give them that experience was probably a smart thing to do. How did Navy and Air Force fare at the same time? Was it a similar dynamic? You know? Yeah, they, they had good years as well. I mean, there was a there was a pretty high, I don't recall the exact numbers. I mean, we beat them as, as, as it should be, um, but but not by a lot. Uh, there was a there was pretty good representation by all the service academies. We had four Rhodes Scholars this year, all female from West Point. I saw that. That's pretty impressive. Hmm. So, Mike, we're we're working our way towards the end of the podcast, and I'm I'm sensitive to the fact that we really haven't talked that much about your career in the Army, and I'd love to be able to touch on that because you obviously served us at 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 all levels, including including as a flag officer. Um, and so I'm wondering if you might be able to give us some of your most memorable points, uh, the poignant memories you have of serving as, as a leader in the army. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's probably hard for me to, you know, 30 years is a long time. Um, and, and there's a lot of great moments in there or I wouldn't have probably stuck with it as long as I did. Uh, and I was really fortunate to work for a lot of really great people along the way. Uh, and you have to, right? It's, it's really, as I look at the folks that succeed in the Army, 90% of it is who you work for and 10% of it is what you do. And you can't so who, control. Who were some of those folks that you worked for that were like pivotal mentors to you? Yeah, so I was really lucky. I mean, I started in Hawaii under John Northrup and then uh, into Chuck Sobey. Um, I went to Fort Hood. I had uh, Dick Formica, who ended up being a three-star, Rich Cardillo, um, Bob Beckinger, then Dave Valcourt, who ended up, you know, being a three-star over in Korea. Um, just a, a series, you know, even as a colonel, I worked for Ed Cardone, who I think is an 84 grad, if I'm not mistaken, 84, probably. I don't recall. But you know, really just, I lucked out early on working for a great boss. And then I was sort of passed from friend to friend that, that, that they knew along the way. Mm. Um, and, and you just, there's tremendous advantage to that, right? You're a known quantity coming in um, and you just, you know, you get opportunities. Um, I would say a couple things. One, um, deployments for me, lined up with tough jobs. So I was an S3 in combat. I was a brigade S3 in combat. I was a battalion commander in combat. I was a brigade commander in combat. I was a DCG in combat. And because I was deployed at every critical point, um, it was, you had nothing to do but your job. I, I, I think it's really hard for folks that are commanding a battalion in garrison and trying to be home for the kids and trying to be home for their spouse and managing, you know, I could work 20 hour days, nobody cared. And I had that opportunity every time I was in a key job. Um, and it's hard when you're in garrison trying to do the same thing, you, you, you can't. 
really not and be true to to who you need to be as a person. Um, so yeah, I mean that 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 sort of aspect really kind of helped me for better for worse. But it came for me at at a cost. Um, you know, my I mean I've moved seventeen times on active duty. Uh, as I was telling you guys, my my oldest went to four high schools in four years. Um, we made a decision along the way because my wife had to stop working that she would park here in Virginia and re-engage in her career. And uh, I went everywhere geo batch. So even when I wasn't deployed, I wasn't home from the time I was a Lieutenant Colonel until now. Um, and uh, that's sort of what it takes, right? It takes that level of time and, and commitment to continue to do what you need to do and, and advance. but comes at a cost and probably, you know, time will tell if it was worth it. I love soldiers. I love leading soldiers. I love the privilege of, of doing that. Uh, but there was a personal cost along the way that I probably could have managed better. Well, I will say as a classmate, how grateful we are for, for that sacrifice, not just the sacrifice that you've made, but your family. I mean, you've, you've done more than your you shouldered more than your fair share of the task, right? I mean, without question. And, and, and we are also grateful. And now here you are continuing through this ETS partnership program, continuing to serve our soldiers, hopefully at a slightly less uh, uh, torrid op tempo uh, and something where you're, yeah. Yeah, where, you're, where, you're, where you're at least home uh, more. So, you know, thank you for that. Thank you for... Thank you for your 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 hard um, uh, service and commitment to to our country, and I think it I think it is worth it. Um, you're standing from my standpoint. That's easy to say. That's kind of like cheap talk, but I'm so grateful for what you've done. Um, so, since we're kind of coming to the end of it, are there any other thoughts that you have to leave us with, or final reflections that you want to try to? Um, uh, weave into this as a message to our to our classmates. Um, I mean, I know we talked about this, right? And I struggle with it. I um, I've never really felt like I'm in any position to give anybody advice about anything, right? I've screwed up more than my fair share, and so I don't I don't tend to do that. I, I would just say, reflecting um, on my own journey to this point, and then whatever comes, you know, I I just. I think there's a lot of value in what you're doing. I think there's a lot of value in these types of conversations because um, being able to view the world and being able to view your peers as not, not as competitors, but as partners, as friends, is something that it took me longer than it should have to get to. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's, um, there's relationships along the way that just probably can't be repaired because of that. But I think it's just something you take time to learn. Um, you know, we do a great job serving soldiers, uh, but uh, there's an element of ambition in there that it's easy to get caught up in. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's probably not good. And so the opportunity to, to, at least in this job for me, to give something back to folks that really no one's looking out for them. And there's really not, not a tremendous, I mean, no one's promoting me anymore, right? I mean, I work for myself. Um, it's just for me, my, my effort to, to, to try and even the scales. So I think there's something there. I don't know what it is. Well, thank you for that. Absolutely. A lot of life left for all of us, right? I'm, 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 I'm echoing our, our, 
I'm channeling Bernard, what he said in his, in his uh, final reflections, just embrace how young we are, you know, like kind of the beginning of this song, you know, right here, right now, this is what it's all about this. We've got like 50 more years of, of productive life um, out there. So, you know, let's be grateful for it and connect and do all these kind of cool things and see each other and, and make sure that uh, we're looking out for each other, lifting each other up and celebrating each other along the way too. For real. So, hey, and, and what, what, here's what I want to close with. I listen to your stories, uh, Mike, and I can't help but think of someone who needs to do some more self-care. I'm sure you're familiar with that concept. And for me, self-care is like getting on a surfboard and going and riding some waves, you know, or going to the mountain and going snowboard. I don't know if you learn how to surf when you're in Hawaii, but if you didn't, uh, we need to link up regardless and go surfing and have some fun and, you know, uh, and, and, and engage that part of, the, of life. So uh, we can keep you motivated and happy. You feel me? Yeah, no, it's all good. It's all good. I mean, look, I got, I got a five-year-old here now, man. I'm having all kinds of fun. We're building good. snowboards oh, There today. we go. <laughs> Well, this should be, this is an opportunity also for another plug here for uh, Kenny Walks Across America. Kenny Mintz, Colonel Kenny Mintz, retired, is getting ready to do his walk across America starting April 1st. He's going to be starting at Lincoln Memorial and uh, going up to Carlisle Barracks, Chillicothe, Ohio, across the country, all the way out to, uh, uh, I think, Escondido, California, where he's from. So that should be an opportunity for us to celebrate our classmate, but also find opportunities to reconnect on the road with him. And, and walk with him. I'm going to definitely be walking with him for some of that journey. I hope you guys will as well. So that's a great way to connect also. And so with that, I'll let the credits roll out. You guys can stick around. I'm going to stop the live feed. We'll go out with our outro. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast. Please check back on this Facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast. Thank you.